This weekend, I had the, uh, the joy and the privilege of traveling up to Kent Covenant Church, our sister church up in Kent, Washington, uh, where we had our regional conference annual meeting. Our conference is called the Pacific Southwest Conference, and we had several of our council members go and participate in the annual meeting. And then yesterday, we had a leadership matrix conference where we had some workshops, and it was a real joy to be together with our sister churches and to hear about what God is doing in our four-state region. And so I bring greetings and uh, blessings to you from all of our sister churches and the ministries that they're doing. And we are uh, reminded, again, that as a church, we are part of a larger movement. Yes, as part of the Evangelical Covenant Church, we're now a part of this movement called the Covenant and uh, this region, but we're a part of the movement of the kingdom of God. And we're a part of all churches. And so while we celebrate being united with particular people and particular groups of people, we recognize that those relationships are part of the network of the people of God that God is weaving together and using to bless this world and to bring his light into darkness. So it is exciting to be together. Uh, We are in our series called Honest to God, and uh, we're looking at um, a variety of ways uh, that Robert McGee, in his book, The Search for Significance, identifies that we, even as Christians, can get off track in our relationship with God and not experience the freedom that God's truth has intended to bring to our lives because we fall victim to believing lies that the enemy would like us to believe that that prevent God's truth from taking root in our hearts to, to produce fruit in our souls so that we can experience the joy and the freedom that Jesus said that he came to give. McGee in his book tells a story about a man named Randy who at work was always helping to do other people's work. At home, his friends were always asking him to help do odd jobs and projects around their houses. And at church, everyone could always count on good old Randy to head up any new event or ministry program. And on the surface, he seemed like an idyllic, perfect churchgoer, the kind of guy that you would want in your corner. But in reality, Randy was deeply becoming resentful of all those people who were continually demanding more and more of him. And as you got to know Randy and you talked about what was really going on beneath the surface, you, you began to discover that Randy was the kind of guy who just could not say no. He longed for the approval of other people, and he thought that by agreeing to their every wish, that somehow he, he, would, he would win their acceptance, and he would win the favor of those around him, and he, and he tried to find approval by doing all of the things that people asked of him to do. And we come to recognize that we, too, are challenged with this issue of needing and wanting the approval of the people around us. In fact, we live in a world that is filled with people who will demand that we please them in order to exchange their approval and their acceptance for us in our lives. And what we discover today is that this leads us to one of the second primary lies that the enemy wants to use to to steal God's truth from our hearts, to, to take it from our lives and to prevent it from producing fruit. And that is what we are calling the approval trap. Last week, we talked a little bit about the performance trap and the need to, to earn our, our success and our, or to earn our worth through success. And today, we, we look at a corollary of the performance trap, 
And, and the approval trap is the false belief that somehow I must be approved by certain other people in order to be accepted and feel worthwhile and to feel good about myself. I'd like to suggest for us this morning that we all experience this approval temptation, and we call it peer pressure. Now, if you've had kids or, or, or you've worked in youth ministry, you know that one of the key things that we always try and talk about with kids as they're growing up in school is, is the, the peer pressure that they're going to face. And we know that, that kids can be really cruel and, and hard on one another, and they, they pressure one another to make unwise decisions and a lot of things that, that are really difficult for kids to, to go through. But I'd also like to suggest this morning that we never really graduate from peer pressure. It just becomes a little more subtle, and it becomes a little less obvious, but it becomes a part of the culture in which we live. We live in a world that is constantly trying to pressure us to conform to its mold, to to seek the approval of those around us who are trying to fit in to a culture that says you have to please everyone around us. See, at the root of this Peer pressure experiences the belief that we need other people's approval in order to be happy, in order to fit in, and in order to be accepted. The challenge is it leads us to all kinds of behaviors that maybe aren't necessarily the best behaviors that God would have for us. In peer pressure, we try to copy the customs and the dress and the ideas and the behavioral patterns of a particular group or a particular uh, type of people. Who, who determine for us what is correct, what the Bible would say is righteous and the right thing to do in our lives, what is acceptable. And when we buy into this approval trap that we, we somehow have allowed ourselves to believe that, that at least a part of what we're supposed to be doing is living for the approval of the people around us and the culture around us in which we live, we find we, that we too become critical of those who are not fitting in to the patterns and the behaviors that we've all somehow accepted as being the norm for, for what it is to be a, a good person in our culture. But I'd like to suggest for us this morning also that rather than allowing us to experience the freedom that Christ gave us and, and to live freely in relationships, we are continually haunted by the fear of rejection. And that that the next experience might be the one where we experience the disapproval of somebody around us. And so we get caught up in this relational relational dance of seeking approval and fearing rejection that always puts us on the defensive and never allows us to be free in our relationships with one another. Turning to others for what only God can provide is a direct result of believing the lie of the enemy that you need the approval of other people in order to feel good about yourself. As we talked about the performance trap last week and how uh, a life lived for performance and success leads to two corollary issues of perfection and uh, uh, control, there's also two corollary issues that uh, a life lived for approval leads us to, and that's defensiveness and loneliness. Defensiveness is, is a part of, of, of the drive that the approval trap leads us to because if we live our life fearing that somebody is going to reject us or to disapprove of us, then we're always on guard. We're always got our defenses up to protect ourselves from that rejection, to protect ourselves from that disapproval. And that really leads us to an experience of relationship that I think we're seeing over and over again in our culture that is, is really anti-Christian. It is anti-Christ. 
And I, and I call it the anti-golden rule. You guys are familiar with the anti-golden rule, right? It's that rule that says, do unto others before they do unto you. See, we live in a culture that, that's lost faith in humanity. We've lost faith in the goodness and the, the, the approval of one another. And so we live defensively, always kind of uh, uh, being ready to attack other people in a defensive measure to do unto them before they do unto us because we know that it's coming anyway, or at least we assume that it is. And so everywhere we go in our culture, we see people who have these walls of defensiveness and almost kind of aggressiveness against one another. Because we're so afraid of being rejected by those around us that we're not able to live freely and to let down our guard and to just be who we are because it feels too vulnerable, too risky, because we know that the next rejection might be the one that cuts us to our core. The fear of rejection can lead us to the need to reject others before they can reject us, which becomes kind of a posture of how we approach relationships. And, and this works its way subtly into our churches, into our marriages, even into our parenting, we, where we want to, we want to pre, preload you know, our children's behavior because if they fail or if they make a mistake, if they let us down, if, if they don't think that we love them enough or if we're not close enough friends with them, then somehow it's going to reflect badly on us. And like the need to control in the fear of failure, the fear of rejection leads us to a defensiveness that becomes like the one-two punch in our relationships with one another. And so we don't really ever learn to live in acceptance and joy and love that God offers us. We're always on the defense, guarding ourselves and guarding our hearts against one another. Robert McGee in the book suggests that rejection is a, is a type of communication. It conveys the message either directly or indirectly that someone else is unsatisfactory to us. That he or she doesn't measure up to a standard that, that we've created or adopted for ourselves. And in our own fear of rejection, we often try to manipulate one another into doing what we want them to do, into behaving the way we want them to behave, in, in terms of living the way we want them to live. And we do so by communicating our disapproval of them. And if you've lived very long, you know that disapproval can be communicated in a lot of subtle ways, right? A look, a glance, a furrowed brow, a turning of the back, a withholding of communication. There are all kinds of ways that we are continually and subtly communicating our disapproval and our dissatisfaction with one another. And so we are in this dance of the approval trap. We're always seeking approval from one another, but always on the defense, not able to really, really live in a society of love and approval that God would have for us. We work to live up to someone else's standards in order to be accepted and gain their approval, all the while never believing that approval is really possible. But you see, the good news of Jesus Christ is that God's truth comes in the form of his son, Jesus, who gave his life on the cross, not only to forgive us our sins and to justify us from, from our all unrighteousness, the Bible says, but also because Jesus is alive and he's given us his Holy Spirit, we have been reconciled to God. We have been accepted and approved by God through the blood of Jesus Christ, and so that we can live freely, not defensively. Trusting in that acceptance and that approval as the foundation of our identity, which then allows us to live in a whole new way in our relationships with one another. 
God's truth sets us free from the approval trap and opens the door for us to find our value and our acceptance through God alone. So what is this truth and how does the Bible talk about it? Today, I just want to look at a few passages, but we're going to start in the letter to the Colossians, chapter 1. And the core two verses really in this larger section, starting at verse 21, says, Once you were alienated from God and were enemies in your minds because of your evil behavior, but now he has reconciled you by Christ's physical body through death to present you holy in his sight without blemish and free from accusation. You see, this truth of reconciliation to God is one of the core truths that we as Christians hold on to as a fact of life. It's one of those core truths that we're supposed to build our life on, that we're supposed to build our relationships on. But if the enemy comes in and and, and pulls that truth out of our minds and, and prevents it from taking root in our heart, We can intellectually understand that reconciliation is this theological concept that we have been made right and brought into relationship with God. And we can study it and we can understand it intellectually, but it never really begins to produce the kind of fruit that God intended where we're living out this truth in our relationships with one another. Because if we truly believe that we are now reconciled to the creator of the universe, the God who made us, the God who holds our life in the palm of his hands, and the one who can say, approved, good, lovely, worthwhile, how, why would we go anywhere else to seek that, that, that validation? And yet we do it time and time again. I think it's helpful to, to look at this these two verses in their larger context. So so I I, want to take the lens and let's expand out a little bit and jump back to verse 15 and look at the context in which the Apostle Paul is writing about this truth of reconciliation. He starts in verse 15 by saying, the Son, talking about Jesus, is the image of the invisible God. We've talked about this recently, right? Jesus is God with a face. He's a God that we can relate to. He's a God with a personality. He's a God who's experienced humanity in a way that he knows everything that we're going through. He knows exactly what it feels like to be in human skin and to experience human pain, to experience rejection and the loss of other people's approval. The Son is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. For in him all things were created, things in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or powers or rulers or authorities, all things have been created through him and for him. He is before all things, and in him all things hold together, and he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning and the firstborn from among the dead, so that in everything he might have the supremacy. For God was pleased to have all his fullness dwell in him and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether things on earth or things in heaven, by making peace through his blood shed on the cross. And then he says, once you were alienated, but now you are reconciled. You are reconciled to this Jesus This man who now has supremacy over all things, who says through his blood and his death, I love you, I accept you, you are valued in my eyes. Why would you go looking for approval any other place than this? And yet the enemy always, 
always gets that hook in us and goes, oh, no, 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 that's not enough. You need approval over here. You need approval over here. You need these people to say that you're worthwhile. You need this person to say that you're valuable. And we get off track in the truth that is supposed to give us the confidence and the joy to live life with reckless abandon and and to lavish everyone else with love and acceptance and joy because we don't need them to give that to us. We're now free to give it away to everybody else. He goes on in verse 23 to say that all this is possible if you continue in your faith. If you continue in your faith. If you keep believing this truth. If you don't give up on believing that this is true for you, it's true for me, and it can be true for everybody. Established and firm, and do not move from the hope that held out in the gospel. This is the gospel. This is the good news that you heard and that has been proclaimed to every creature under heaven, and of which I, Paul, have become a servant. This is the very gospel for which Paul gave up everything. To say this is the pearl of great price. This is the one thing that is worth sacrificing everything for. Because in this truth, we have freedom and we have life. What is God's answer to the approval trap? It's called reconciliation. And it's all about living in real, living, abiding relationship with him. See, because we are reconciled to God, we're, we're already completely acceptable to him. We're already approved by him. And it's not the, anything that we have to do. It is the work that he has accomplished. And it comes to us as a gift. You see, we enjoy this relationship because not only has God forgiven us our sins, but he has come to pursue us and to be with us. And he's given us his presence through the Holy Spirit. He is here now with you, with me communicating that he loves us and there's nothing more that we need to do. The incredible truth of what this means for you and for me is that we too then can become reconcilers of one another. We don't need to live defensively and in in, in opposition to one another, waiting to, to do unto others before they do unto us. We now can experience life as the golden rule. Do unto others as you would Have them do unto you because we're living for an audience of one. You see, this kind of freedom is a a life-giving experience that frees us to give ourselves away with joy and generosity. We don't need to cling to life anymore. We don't need to demand that other people please us because there's nothing more that we need than we already have, which is the very life of God in us. And the other thing that we find is that this kind of freedom allows us to begin to set limits in our relationships with others, to say no without fear of rejection or reprisals, and to be honest with ourselves, both about the passions that God has given us as well as the very limitations that we have as human beings. You see, Jesus knew firsthand what it felt like to be rejected, right? Even going back to the prophecies about Messiah in Isaiah 53.3, it said he was despised and rejected by mankind. A man of suffering and familiar with pain, like one from whom people hide their faces, he was despised and we held him in low esteem. Jesus knew 
what it feels like to be rejected by the people around us. But you know what? It never deterred him from his mission. It never took him off his game. It never confused him from the truth that he was born and he lived and he died for an audience of one. His mission, his whole purpose for being was to do the will of his Father in heaven. And that mission is now ours to take on. The mantle of living for an audience of one is the invitation to service and to sacrifice, but it's also the invitation to freedom and joy in the kingdom of God. Jesus told his disciples in the Sermon on the Mount, blessed are you when people will insult you and persecute you and falsely say all kinds of things about you in my name. I mean, if they did it to the prophets of old, they're going to do it to you, right? See, that's one of the things that we have to understand, that this call to follow Christ is not going to put us on the fast track to popularity in a world that's going the opposite direction from God. Right? When, when, when Jesus calls you to stand up for him and to say, this truth is the truth that I'm going to stake my life on, it might bring more rejection. And so the challenge is as we, as we step out to be followers of Christ, if we're also seeking the, pro- the approval of, of humanity and the culture around us, those are, those are in opposition to one another. And we find ourselves with a split personality, trying to please God, but always living for the approval of those around us. And so we get stuck in these patterns of, of relationship and behavior that lead us to choices that aren't honoring to God. But more often than not, we find ourselves making those choices and living those behaviors because we're trying to please those around us. To somehow allow those, those friends at school to say, you know what, if you come and you join us in this behavior, then we'll accept you into our group. If, if you follow this pattern and you do these things, then, then we'll accept you and say that you're worthwhile. You know what? We do the same thing with people right here in church. We have created standards and expectations and demands on one another, all in the name of Jesus Christ and in the name of God, that maybe aren't necessarily the things that God has for us to do. And yet we, we come with our lenses of, of defensiveness and disapproval, somehow thinking that we can manipulate each other to conform to our version of what we think is acceptable to God. One of the challenges with this whole idea that Jesus says, if you follow me, you too may be rejected, you may be persecuted, is, is it can lead to a behavior among Christians that I like to call false martyrdom. You see, it's false martyrdom is this belief that because Jesus says that the gospel is offensive to our culture, right? The gospel that says you can't do anything on your own. You can't earn it. You can't work for it. All you have to do is receive it as a gift. The cross of Christ that levels the playing field because it says that all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God is offensive to our culture. But the fact that the gospel is an offense to our culture does not mean that we have the right to be offensive when we share the gospel with other people. But too often, I think we get off track and we think that if we go out and in the name of Christ are offensive and shove the gospel in people's faces and hit them over the head with the Bible and and show our disapproval of them in the name of God, and we get rejected by them because of it, we wear that as a badge of courage and say, ah, well, God said we would be martyred because the gospel is offensive. Oh, men and women, 
How can the gospel of love and acceptance be brought to a broken and a hurting world with disapproval and rejection and shame? It can't. We have to be the ones who first receive that kind of love and forgiveness and acceptance and stop living for the approval of others. Stop coming to church with, with, with our facade of Christianity, trying to, to live up to the, the expectations of those around us for them to believe that we're good Christian people who don't have any problems. When all the while, the very problems that are in our culture we know are right here in this room because we are the culture. Statistically, we're very, very, we're hardly any different from the world around us. And we have to humbly admit to God that that we often, in our desire to, to, to be approved by other people, other religious people, put on this facade of religiosity, trying to live the behavior and do the right things and and show up to church on Sunday. But all the while, we're not really following Jesus. We're not really connecting with his spirit. We're not really following him and living in the freedom and the joy of a relationship with God, which is the whole point of why Jesus came. You see, this is the, the kind of life that the freedom from approval allows us to live in the power of the Holy Spirit. And that's why I want to look briefly at Ephesians chapter 1, verses 13 and 14, where Paul says, And you also were included in Christ when you heard this message of truth, the gospel, the good news of your salvation. When you believed, you were marked in him with a seal, the promised Holy Spirit, who is a deposit guaranteeing our inheritance until the redemption of those who are God's possession to the praise of whose glory? Our glory? To the praise of his glory. Because you and I now have the spirit of Christ living in us, setting us free from the need for approval from anyone else. We are now free to live for an audience of one. All we need to do is humbly, daily, come before God seeking his will. And all these things, Jesus said, will be added unto you. We're free to live for the praise of his glory. But the problem is, too often, because we're always seeking the approval of those around us, what we unwittingly do is we live lives of quiet isolation and loneliness. One of the most scary and and profound challenges in our modern culture is that we live in one of the most populated worlds ever. We live in these urban centers with millions of people, but we walk around living lonely, desperate lives. You can be completely alone in the middle of a crowded room because no one ever really knows who you are and what you're going through. And that is not living in freedom. Men and women, if we cannot be honest and vulnerable and transparent and true in church and and have it be a safe place to be accepted with all of our warts and all of our difficulties and all of the challenges we go through, where else can we do it? I'm going to say nowhere. That is the mission that God has given us, is to be the people who are the ambassadors of reconciliation, as Paul says in Romans 5. 
We are ambassadors of this reconciliation. But if we're not experiencing it, if we're not living in it, how can we ever share it with anyone else? Worked with Pastor Jim Gatterlin in Foothill Covenant Church for a number of years, and he used to tell the story about his mom who would always say to him, you know, you wouldn't care so much about what other people think about you if you realize how little they actually do. But you know what? I think that that's true because we are so desperate to, to gain our own acceptance. We're so focused on our own lives and our own needs. And we're so worried about, about what other people are thinking about us is that we not realize that, that we've been set free from that. And our job is to now look and see one another and say, I see you. I love you. I care about you. Everything that you're going through, you don't need to be afraid of me. I'm not going to reject you. If God has accepted you, I accept you too. And that kind of relationship, that kind of community, that kind of experience will create a movement that will spread in this dark, lonely world like wildfire. But if we're a people who people walk in the door and they sense that this is a place that has approval expectations that you have to dress a certain way, you have to act a certain way, you have to talk a certain way in order to be approved and accepted here. No wonder the culture wants to run from that. No wonder people are are scared to darken the door of a church because we have this reputation of being the most judgmental, critical people on the planet. And sadly, sometimes it's true. And we've got a lot of work to overcome that bad reputation. But see, our confidence to live this way, to live in freedom, and to to be the kind of church that is accepting of all people comes from our hope that this has already been given us in Jesus Christ. Even in church, many of us will continue to try and attain our significance in the world's way rather than following God's way. But for us, we have an opportunity to live differently because... Again, in Romans chapter 8, Paul says, we have this confidence now because of what Christ has done. Nothing can separate us from this love of God that we have in Jesus Christ. What then shall we say then in Romans eight thirty one? In response to all these things, if God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son but gave him up for us all, how will he not also along with him graciously give us all things? What do we have to worry about? And then skipping ahead to verse 38. For I am convinced that neither death nor life nor angels nor demons nor the present nor the future nor any powers, neither height nor depth nor anything in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. This is a truth to build your life on. This is a truth that you should remind yourself of every day. What do we have to fear? What can man do to us? Nothing if we are in Christ and we have the power of the living God at work in our lives. I'd like to close with Paul's words in 2 Corinthians 5, 14, 15. For Christ's love compels us. Because we are convinced that one died for all and therefore all died. He died for all that those who live should no longer live 
for themselves, but for him who died for them and was raised again. See, we are positively motivated by Christ's love to go out and share this love freely because we are now living for an audience of one. I don't know where you struggle with the approval trap in your life. I know that it's a big temptation for me. I mean, I, I know that we live this in our marriages. We live this in our families. If you're a student, you live this in school. We're always sensitive to what other people are thinking and, and hoping that they're going to like us and love us. But men and women, we have to be set free from that need so that we can be those who demonstrate that we can love others and accept them through the love of God that he's given us. And if we do that, then we can live with the lightness and the joy and the freedom that God desires for us that he's offered us through his son. Would you pray with me? God, this morning, forgive us for the ways that we have given our attention to the approval of others. God, forgive us for the ways that we have allowed ourselves to be afraid of being rejected by those around us, whether it's our classmates or those friends that we want to get in good with, whether it's our people at work or even in home with, with one another, if we're trying to seek approval and acceptance from human beings before you, God, forgive us. Help us to see how that steals the truth that we already are accepted in Jesus Christ. God, set us free and put us on that path again to live whole lives in you. With the love that you've given us, help us to be a light and, and, and the kind of people who can live transparently and openly sharing that love and acceptance with all those that you would bring us. And we will thank you and praise you through Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen. One of the ways we worship God as a faith community is we bring gifts of tithes and offerings as a way of saying thank you to God for all of the ways that he blesses us. It's also a way that we participate in this mission of love that he's given us. So if you have come and you've prepared a gift for God this morning in worship, we're going to invite you to bring that now. If you are visiting with us, please don't feel any pressure to have to participate in this way. Your presence to us is your gift, and uh, we just invite you to enjoy being in God's presence this morning. Let's continue to worship God through our gifts of tithes and offerings.